so it's more that I don't think the word physical domain is meaningful. Yeah. yeah. Which is so, it's so fun because usually you think of it going the other way and you're like, what is this spooky ghost mm-hmm. in the machine you're talking about? Can you give me any evidence of it? Obviously we know it's physical. I'm knocking on this desk right now, but you're like, well, let's just turn that. I'm a little bit more uh, directly aware of my thoughts than I am that this desk is not, uh, you know, a computer simulation or something like that. Right. Which is really fun. I really like that. So, um, yeah. What's, what's up physics, with... physics tells you your desk is mostly empty space, right? It's a bundle know, of forces. I know. So, <laughs> physics <laughs> is spooky, right? I love it when people get accused of spookiness. I'm like, yeah. physics is about as spooky as it gets. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedecase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I really love thinking about cool stuff, and you're invited to come think with me and experts in these fields. So today, we have another special guest we have with us, Dr. Dolores Morris and uh, Del- Dolores G. Morris. Um, she teaches philosophy at the University of South Florida. And uh, she she's done a lot of work on philosophy of mind type stuff and causal closure. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. I'm really excited for it. Uh, before we get in, I do want to hawk her book, though, because it's a really good book that she just came out with called Believing Philosophy. Um, and it's a guide to becoming a Christian philosopher. Um, I believe she's done an episode with Jordan over on The Analytic Christian. I can ask her about that. But um, so check this out. It's a it's a good book. Um, and uh, let's have more Christian philosophers out there, believing philosophers. Um, but today we're going to be talking about mind. Uh, and as you guys know, I love talking about mind stuff. So I'm excited. Before we jump in, though, I want to thank everyone who is supporting me on Patreon, all the patrons. If you like this podcast, if you have benefited from it personally, you think it's valuable, uh, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. I'd love to do this as like a full-time gig. I'd love to be in Florida right now with Dolores talking in person. Um, and you guys are actually making that possible. You... Um, have helped me get new gear. You've helped me get a new dog, uh, Theophilus, our little Bernadoodle. So thank you for all the current patrons. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron. You can find a link in the description wherever you're getting this podcast at. All right. So without further ado, let's bring in Dolores and let's get going on mind and causal closure. <clears throat> Dolores, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is this is a long time coming, and uh, I'm I'm so grateful that you stuck with me that, that we're here right now. Um, you sent me this book, which is fantastic. Uh, just a, a word about this book before we get in uh, to your dissertational work and your and your uh, mind stuff. Why 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 this book and and why now? What what's what's so important about being a believing philosopher? Yeah, so uh, the answer to why this book is just. It's really my whole story of coming to philosophy, really. And mm. the book actually came out of classes that I was teaching at my local church. Mm. So when I when we first started to get more involved with our local church, they asked, um, I go to this amazing church where they seem to have this great attitude towards um, how, to, how to really make use of the church members. So yeah. instead of having a sort of set needs and finding the right person to fill each of those needs, they do a very good job at seeing who that particular church is and what yeah. gifts they have there. And so That's they were huge. like, wow, we have a couple of philosophy professors because <laughs> I also <laughs> married a philosopher, right? <laughs> That's right? And so they said, I guess we should start having some classes on philosophy. Um, and that was a great opportunity for me to mm-hmm. start. And of course it began, I probably started with a class on Christian apologetics, mm-hmm. but very quickly realized straightforward apologetics as it's commonly conceived was not really what I wanted to do. Um, yeah. I'm not opposed to apologetics. Well done. Apologetics are fantastic. 
But I actually am more inclined to take a step further back and just encourage Christians to get like the basic tools of philosophy, getting right. clear about what you believe, understanding why you believe it, before you jump right into arguments and trying to win them and trying to get like <laughs> prove other people wrong, right? I right. Think it's better to just first get a clear understanding about what you believe and why you believe it. And so I started teaching classes on that, on how good basic philosophical concepts can be beneficial to the Christian faith. And, and also about how this runs counter to some of what we hear about philosophy, right? A, a fair number of people in the church see philosophy as like a threat or a risk, right? I know. Um, yep. Yeah. So I encountered a lot of that myself. So anyway, I taught the class for a while. And then my pastor started asking when I was going to write the book. <laughs> and yeah. I thought, I don't have time for that. But here it is. So um, why now was just that I, I was given the opportunity and um, was given some you know, support from Templeton and support from Zondervan to really make it happen. And so I was able to get a year off from teaching to do that. Yeah. But now I think it's really timely. Um, Every year that goes by, I feel. Seriously. Yeah. (laughs) Every single year, it would have been more timely if you put this out next year. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) So. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. So um, just a word about the, the uh, intended audience is, is it, is it everyone or is it particularly like, uh, you know, uh, a learned person who's interested in coming to philosophy? So my number one goal was to make it accessible. Okay. Um, well, two goals. I wanted to make it accessible, but I also wanted to make it clear and sufficiently rigorous, right? Mm. Um, where I teach, University of South Florida, we have this funny policy where no philosophy course is allowed to have any philosophy prerequisites. And so I spent 10 years teaching philosophy of mind to students, most of whom have never taken an intro to philosophy course. Wow. Um, and so I have this kind of dual task, right? On the one hand, I need to make sure that we're being honest with these students. If they're told they can take this class, I need to make it accessible to them. Right. But I also need to make sure that our majors get a real philosophy of mind class. Mm-hmm. And so um, that really gave me time to develop the skill of presenting genuinely complicated material in ordinary language. Yeah. Um, and that was incredibly helpful for this book. So the intended audience... I. I kept it in mind. Um, the audience I had in mind were the adults who came to these classes at my church. Mm. Plenty of them were college educated, but also quite a lot were not. And even the ones who were college educated, most of them, it had been a long time since they'd been in a classroom. And I also kept in mind um, students of the high school that I went to, which is like a you know pretty rigorous high school. So I just thought I was aiming for around there, right? An ambitious high school student okay. through college students and intellectually curious adults. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. And and sometimes you get uh, the marketers saying you need to get more focused. And I, I'm with you. Like, yeah. no, let's make it rigorous and let's make that's what I want to do with the podcast. So um, yes. so I'm, I'm right there with you. And, and I appreciate this book. I'm excited to, to jumping in on it even more. And maybe we could do an episode on that later. Yeah, um, but can you remember you, you talked a little bit about apologetics and getting into philosophy. Can you remember like what first got you excited about philosophy? What why? Why are you a philosophy professor? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I probably first got excited about philosophy, not knowing that I was excited about philosophy mm-hmm. when I fell in love with Russian literature in high school. I okay. read uh, The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. Sure. And I just thought, oh, where have I been? <laughs> right. This is what I need to be reading. It took me a long time to figure out that I loved it because of the philosophical content. Mm-hmm. So when that happened was I was at a college um, that was a private, small liberal arts college, overwhelmingly secular. Um and I was a Christian and a serious committed Christian. Um, but I'd had a really rough 
couple of years. I lived mm. this sort of charmed life up until just before I turned 15 and then went through just a series of tragedies, people in my life that I really loved that died um, mm. and that died early uh, and unexpectedly. Right. So it, it just threw me into a period of, well, about five years that was just a, an overwhelmingly difficult period. Yeah. And in the middle of that, I was in college um, at an overwhelmingly secular school, right? So dealing mm. with grief and really grappling with um, questions of why God allowed the things that he allows, right? Um, and I heard that one of the professors in the philosophy department was a Christian. Mm. I knew about him because of his involvement with university, actually. And he was teaching a class called Reason and Religion. And we signed up for it, my roommate and I, just really because he was a Christian <laughs> and because I had had so many classes from people that were, um, he was not the only Christian professor I had, but overwhelmingly the message was not positive towards any sort of Orthodox religious belief. Mm -hmm. So I took this class and I just fell in love with it. Um, that was Michael Murray, actually. Um, he also wow. edited a really accessible book, Reason for the Hope Within. Yeah. Um, that was Michael Murray. And I loved the class and he thought I was well suited to philosophy. And um, yes, yeah, so that started this long train. But but what I loved about it, what I loved about it was the stuff that I found so difficult. The questions that I was wrestling with were like the proper content for a classroom discussion. Mm. And that was so helpful for me. So instead of just instead of just these like emotionally weighty things I was trying to work through on my own, the philosophers were willing to, to follow them all to their consequences, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So yeah, suffering's really hard, right? That's true. <laughs> suffering's really awful. If we had our choice, um, if we got to make God, we would like to make a God that didn't allow that kind of stuff, right? But let's actually talk through, let's actually talk through whether there is any inconsistency yeah. between a loving, all-powerful God and the kind of suffering that we see. I just found the whole project so refreshing and compelling. Yeah. Um, so although I ended up writing in the philosophy of mind, it was philosophy of religion that, that drew me in. Yeah. So that, that's, that's my next question. You, you got suffering, you got, you know, the brothers, you're reading them, yeah. probably, probably some more Russian literature mm -hmm. and you didn't go the existentialist route. You didn't go uh, into the, how'd you end up in philosophy of mind? And, and you studied at, at, uh, Notre Dame. Yep, I did. How, how did that happen? I, I am an analytic metaphysician. I know oh, we God. get a lot of teasing and a lot of ribbing. I mean, I'm married to a guy who wrote his dissertation on Hegel. So I okay, am there you go. You've, plenty you've done, familiar. You've done your job for the, for the continental folks. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. I have plenty of friends who, you know, are constantly ragging on the analytic metaphysicians, but I love it. I just yeah. love that style of writing. I mm -hmm. love that style of reading. And really the number one factor was when I went to Notre Dame, Jaguan Kim was teaching there yeah. and Michael Murray, my advisor, was like, wait, you have to take you have to take whatever class he's offering. This guy's kind of a big deal. And so I took his first class on action, explanation, and agency. Mm. He was an incredible teacher. Okay. He was incredible. He was so clear, really humble, um, and really accessible, but obviously brilliant. And so I just took everything he offered for the next three years or two years, three semesters, something like that. Yeah. Um, and that really pulled me into questions about the mind. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. And w was that around the time when he was writing um, uh, phys physicalism or something near near enough? Is that the, is that was, had that already come out or I think it I had just it come out. Okay, I'm pretty sure it had just come out. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, it definitely it came out around then because that's okay. essentially what I wrote my dissertation on. Nice. My whole dissertation is basically a point by point response to King's <laughs> physicalism or something near enough. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and, and the title of that for, uh, for folks listening is Physicalism, Dualism, and the Mind-Body Problem. Is that right? Did I get that right? That's right. right. Okay. So, yeah. Nice. And, and we're going to be talking about that, which I'm, which I'm excited for. But I first uh, found out um, that you are into mind stuff because of this paper uh, at the uh, Society of Christian Philosophers. I, I knew this believing philosophy stuff. I'd seen that. But then yeah. I didn't know what you're doing, your dissertational, what you had done your dissertational work on. So yeah. then I was like, mind? Okay, we got another one. I, I, let's go. Um, so, so you did your work at Notre Dame. Who, who was that under? Cause I think you told me that, that it wasn't actually under Kim for some reason. It wasn't. Yeah. It was under actually Alvin Plantinga. Yeah, so that was great. <laughs> great to work with him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, um, Jaguan Kim actually really was involved. He read the chapters. He gave me comments. It was very helpful. Um, funny fact about him. He, w- he would not fly. He was not comfortable flying. Okay. Um, and so when he taught, he drove from Brown, from Brown to Notre Dame. Hmm. And he would come for half the semester. So his seminars were run. They were all taught in the first half of the semester, double duty. Um, And anyway, he wasn't uh, he he said he didn't want to be on the committee just because he knew he wouldn't be able to make the trips for any Uh, meetings. This is pre Zoom. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, And so he was he was like a like an unofficial member. Very, very helpful. Yeah. Great comments, but not. uh, But I worked under Al. Yeah, that's so awesome. Yeah, it was that's fantastic. Um, okay, well, um, I want to get in on, on closure. Um, and this paper that, that you presented was called Can Closure Be an Attitude? Um, but real quick, uh, just so so those who aren't into mind stuff, uh, they don't get lost. Um, let's define some terms here. So, what's a, what's a non reductive account of the mind? Okay, so, um, a reductive account of the mind says that everything that is true about the mind is really properly expressible just in terms of physics, right? Mm-hmm. Or in terms of some holy third person scientific account, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I find that the analogy of like economics is really helpful here. There are all sorts of facts about economics, right? Economic facts. Mm-hmm. But really, ultimately, they probably rest on other kinds of facts, facts of human psychology and facts of, um, I don't even know, I probably shouldn't have picked economics because I don't know <laughs> enough about it. <laughs> but um, but fact, like even though we think there are like laws of economics, they're probably more properly laws of psychology and laws of sociology and laws of anthropology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what that would be doing is reducing economics to those further disciplines. Yeah. So a reductive account of the mind says, yeah, everything that we think of as mental, but you think of as a belief or a desire or experience. Ultimately, it's probably a brain state. And it's certainly something that the physicists could talk about in third person. So we use the word objective and subjective in philosophy of mind. It's most helpful to think of it as either third person or first person accessible. Mm -hmm. A reductive account of the mind says that everything, not just most, but everything about the mind is in principle third person knowable. Then a non-reductive account says, no, it isn't. Some facts about the mind are irreducibly mental. And with that usually comes irreducible subjectivity or this special kind of first person access where I can access my mind in a way that nobody else can. Um, something like that. That's awesome. Okay, great. So um, so then now we just got, uh, I think one more, uh, the, the yeah. causal exclusion argument. Mm-hmm. And... Um, just shorthand, people always say uh, causal closure, but right. it, there, you need an argument for it. You can't just say it, but some, I guess one of your arguments is that people do just say it, right? Like yeah. they, they just <laughs> drop it. But yeah, what is, what is uh causal exclusion and causal closure? 
Sure. Okay. So those are two principles that come together to form what's usually called the causal conclusion argument, right? Um, and, and it usually goes something like this, like try to think of one case, any case at all, where something that is really mental makes a difference in the physical world. For whatever reason, philosophers almost always pick, you desire a beer and so you go get a beer. This is the standard philosopher, right? A standard example. Yeah. So you have this mental experience of like, well, I could use a beer right now, right? And you think that there's some in the fridge. So this is all this is all mental in the beginning. You could replace it with a Coke or um, even just going for a walk outside, right? But you have this mental thing, this desire, but it has a physical result. Your body moves to a different room. You move stuff around, all sorts of observable physical actions at the end. So far, so good, right? Yeah. But causal closure is a principle that says that really the domain of physics, the physical world itself, is a closed domain. So nothing physical is ever really caused by something that isn't itself physical. Right. To go back to the economics example, we don't think economics is a closed domain. If there is an environmental catastrophe, there will be economic results. Mm -hmm. And so you can have an economic effect from a non-economic cause, right? An earthquake is not an economic entity, but it can have economic effects. Physics is not supposed to be like that way, like that. The physical world is supposed to be a domain that can't be interfered with from outside of physics, right? Or physics is the science. Physical is what we would describe the world that that science is, is talking about. And one way or another, there's not supposed to be what we sometimes call downward causation, right? Mm -hmm. um, something that is outside of this basic physical reality, coming in and mucking around in that physical reality. Instead, it's supposed to be a closed system where if you think, you don't have to think it's deterministic, but if you think kind of like a, a, a vast array of dominoes, every domino that falls is ultimately pushed by another domino, right? Yeah. So if causal closure is true, then this is what the physical world is like, right? Mm -hmm. Every physical effect has a fully physical cause. Yeah. So here's where we are. Yeah. We thought we had an example of a mental cause of a physical effect, but closure tells us that that physical effect has to also has to have a physical cause. Mm -hmm. So now there's this tension. Do we have two genuinely different causes of one effect? Mm -hmm. This is where what we call this causal exclusion principle comes in. And it says, that's just not what happens, right? Uh, if you have one full cause of another, uh, if you have one full cause of an effect, you're not, it's, it's, it's not that you could never have two independent causes bringing about the same effect, but mm -hmm. that that doesn't happen all the time. There isn't what we would call systematic overdetermination. Yeah. Um, this is a hard thing to explain quickly, but the basic way that it goes yeah. is, it looks like you have a mental cause of a physical effect. Then mm -hmm. it looks like you have a physical cause of that same effect mm -hmm. because of causal closure. Yeah. And then you have this choice. Is it really the case that every time the mental acts in the world, it just does what the physical world was already going to do? Because remember, every physical effect has a full, sufficient physical cause yeah. if closure is true. So then the non-reductive, the defender of non-reductive mental causation has to pick. Is mental causation just gratuitous, right? Does it just yep. happen on top of what the physical is already doing? Or is mental causation actually just more instances of physical causation? Mm -hmm. And this is typically the conclusion that reduction is the right answer. Yeah. Because instead of this messy world where you have two parallel causal chains, it gives you one neat causal chain. Mm -hmm. 
And then the mental cause becomes really just another name for what is really ultimately a physical cause. Right. That's kind of how the argument runs. Yeah. And I love the way you set it up and I love the way you, you um, um, set it up and then explained it as well. If uh, some people might go, well, you know, why, why, why go in for a causal closure? But from like the neuroscience, they say, well, look, uh, why'd you raise your hand? I, I always hear people say the beer and, and raise Look, I raise my hand and it goes up. Um, <laughs> you say, look, why'd you raise your hand? And you go, because I wanted to. But the neuroscientist uh, behind you goes, no, actually, I saw the action potential move from this. And I saw it cross the synapses and um, you, your neurons fired and you have this physical right. explanation for it. So when we have these two, you get this option of saying, well, yes, they both just ma like magically link up. Mm -hmm. You have a mental state and a neural state going on at the same time or uh yeah you reduce it down to the physical and you just are kind of deceived or it's an illusion maybe or it's uh however you want to explain it or then you get like um i believe kim was an epiphenomenalist but maybe he changed his mind on that no he only about qualia but yeah he was okay okay yeah. so then then you have uh the the nomological dangler of it's uh there is physical the physical chain but it's just producing non-causal qualia experiences right right yeah okay okay yeah and that's one of the responses some people respond with epiphenomenalism and they just say yeah it turns out that the irreducibly mental stuff never actually makes a difference in the world yeah. you think you cry because of what pain feels like yeah. but you actually cry because of whatever synaptic activity is going on um at that time yeah yeah is that is that Libitz? I forgot the guy's name. The, um, there's like a Libitz test or something where, where it's, it's usually in free will free will literature, where they they say you know raise your hand when you see the light go off or whatever, and they mm -hmm. they're looking at your brain and they say well actually the action potential happened you know a point point whatever of a second beforehand, and then that's been like a whole crazy thing in in philosophy of free will. I think it's Libitz, but I, I could be getting that wrong. That's cool. I don't know it. I want to look it up. That's neat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they use they grab that and they bring that over. It's crazy. The whole thing's nuts. Um. So. You have the story, uh, I believe it was in your dissertation, but maybe it was in your in the paper about uh, Kim and he was teaching um, about interactionism and, and you asked him, you know, why would an interactive substance dualist, basically a, someone who believes in an immaterial mind or soul that mm -hmm. can interact with the body, um, why would an interactive sub interactionist substance dualist uh, accept causal closure? And uh, I, I love what he said. Uh, can, can you recount yeah. that first? I love it too. It was one of my favorite moments of graduate school. He <laughs> laughed. And it was like this sheepish laugh. And he said, I have no idea, but they do. Right. <laughs> and it really was like, that's a really good question. It, yeah. Because if you are committed to the existence of an irreducibly mental substance that interacts causally with the physical world, mm. causal closure shuts the door on that. And right. I know people say that it doesn't, right? Because it allows for... Um, Oh, I don't know. It allows for basically overdetermination. You could you yeah. could still have mental causation. It just brings about the same effects that the physical causation is going to bring. If what you're looking for is difference making, causal mm -hmm. closure shuts the door. Right. And so I don't understand why substance dualists accept it. But it's also true that Kim is right that overwhelmingly, at least for a long time, many of them really seemed to. So yeah, I was baffled by that as a graduate student, and he was, I think, amused at my baffling. I love that. Can <laughs> I wonder this this might be like terminological or something but if you if you do hold to overdetermination which I I don't know anyone who does but but it's philosophy so someone out there probably goes I'm an overdeterministist. Yeah. Um is that does could that even count as uh interactionism like they're they're two parallel chains. Mm -hmm. But are they ever actually interacting is the Well, right? Jim, sorry. 
Yeah, no, go ahead. Do you, do, you see, do you see what I'm getting? getting I do, at? but it's not two parallel causal chains. That would be like occasionalism maybe, right? Or um, okay. pre-established harmony. But this, I, I'm, I know, I shouldn't say I know. It's been a long time since I've looked at this literature, right? Yeah, yeah, sorry. But from what I remember, Fritz Warfield wrote a paper about this with somebody. I don't know if it's because he thinks it's true or if he just defended it, right? I don't don't know the details of his commitment. He was a professor at Notre Dame when I was there. Defending the possibility that all mental causation just is overdetermining causation. But the reason that it is um, would still count as interactionist is even if it's overdetermining causation, in, in cases of genuine overdetermination, you have two sufficient causes yeah. of the same effect. So the mental is still a sufficient still cause. A cause. Yeah. Still and the idea is if the physical cause hadn't been there, the mental still would have brought it about because yeah. it is a sufficient cause. Right. Yeah. Right. So that right. is different than like, you know, Levmitzi and pre-established harmony. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that's sweet. I love that. Um, so wh- what this, this, this is fun here, but what, what positive evidence um, is there for thinking that the physical is closed? Like what, is it just the, the success of physics? Uh, like yeah. maybe there's more, I don't know, but w- why think that the, the physical is closed? I mean, I think it is largely the success of physics okay. in making predictions and giving explanations. Right. Yeah. And the way the story typically goes is you don't have to leave physics to get answers to the questions that physics poses. Right. And historically physics has done a great job by staying within the domain of physics. And so that is kind of inductive evidence that that domain will ultimately have all of the answers. Okay. And yeah, and it's done a pretty good job. So, I mean, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, um, so this is where it gets really fun. So now we have um, uh, like, why, or what positive evidence do we have or our arguments or reasons to believe that the physical is not closed? Uh, and then we get into like Hempel's dilemma and, and some of your work. So um, in, in like, maybe if you want to add anything before we get to Hempel's dilemma, uh, do that. But if not, let's just jump right into to Hempel staff. Yeah, let's let's just jump right into Hempel's okay. dilemma. Awesome. Yeah. Although I'll say one thing about it, I guess. Yeah, hit me. I don't think that Hempel's dilemma gives you reason to think like positive evidence that the physical domain is not causally closed, gotcha. yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I think it undermines the whole notion of there being a meaningful way of even talking about it being closed, Okay, yeah, which is different, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. it, it totally could be. We just don't know why or we don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't, like know a... what, I don't know what it is in that sentence. I don't know what the physical domain is supposed <laughs> to refer to. That's what it comes down to, right? I love that. When you say, um, is the physical world a closed domain? I say, what is the physical world? What are you talking yeah. about? What are the boundaries there, right? Yeah. Um, or if not boundaries, because that's a lot to expect, what at least would be a, a criteria for falling outside of it? Give me one example of something that you could find that would then be judged non-physical. Yeah. I don't think we have any answers to that. Um, so it's more that I don't think the word physical domain is meaningful. Yeah. yeah. Which is so, it's so fun because... <sighs> Usually you think of it going the other way and you're like, what is this spooky ghost mm-hmm. in the machine you're talking about? Can you give me any evidence of it? Obviously we know it's physical. I'm knocking on this desk right now, but you're like, well, let's just turn <laughs> that. I'm a little bit more uh, directly aware of my thoughts than I am that this desk is not uh, you know, a computer simulation or something like that. Right. 
which is really fun. I really like that. So, um, yeah, what's, what's physics, physics tells you your desk is mostly empty space, right? It's a bundle know, of forces. So, <laughs> so <laughs> physics crazy. is spooky, right? I love it when doulas get accused of spookiness. I'm like, yeah. physics is about as spooky as it gets. Yeah. It's so good. And then, yeah, yeah. you get into quantum stuff too. And then yeah. just ask them about electrons. Um, yeah. What's, what's Hempel's dilemma? Okay. So this was like in 1970, right? And mm-hmm. Hempel was not talking about causal closure. Um, he was just talking about coming up with the definition for what it means to be a physicalist, right? Mm-hmm. And so physicalism is the claim that everything that exists is physical. And I mean, at, first, at face value, this seems obviously meaningful. It seems like just what materialism used to be, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But materialism was built upon this concept of matter. Everything that exists is ultimately composed of little bits of matter, right? Yeah. Except then matter got weird. And then the scientists found things like forces and fields. And so we've shifted our language largely, not completely, from materialism to physicalism. Mm. Because we lost that first criteria, this business of being made up of little bits of solid matter. Nothing is made up of little bits of solid matter. Matter yeah. is energy, right? And so it's it's more sensical to talk about things being physical. Um, but Hempel says, what does that mean? And however you define it has to be with direct reference to the science of physics. Yeah. Um, so it's typically something like, well, the physical is just whatever physicist, whatever the physicists are quantifying over, right? right. Um, and this is not optional. The best evidence for physicalism is the success of physics. But that means that you can't just borrow the name to get the support, right? You have to actually link your meaning of the word physical to that successful science if you want that success to support your theory, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Hempel's right. The whatever the answer to this question is, what does physical mean, has to refer to the science. But as Hempel noted in 1970, and it hasn't changed, the physicists are not done with their work. They haven't found everything, right? So it's a dilemma because it has these two horns. And Hempel says, all right, so if physical means whatever the physicists are talking about, roughly, or whatever the physicists can quantify over, which physics do you mean? Do you mean current day physics? Yeah. Or do you mean some future or ideal physics, like future physics in a world where the physicists get to finish their work, right? And these are the these are the two options. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. So um does anyone bite that first bullet and just say it's it's what what we currently mean? Uh, Andrew Melnick. As far as I know, he's the only okay. one. Yeah. Okay. okay, cool, cool. Yeah. Because I, I never hear it. It's always – I've noticed a lot of my uh, philosopher of mind friends who are physicalists or lean that way. Yeah. They always couch it and they go, yeah, or, or what, what a future, you know, because they have Hempel's dilemma in mind. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's at least one who who does bite the first uh, uh, horn. I don't know if you bite horns of dilemma. You, you take them. I don't them think or, so. Yeah, you, <laughs> you take yeah, them. Yeah. yeah. Um, so – Okay, so we got um, this future, this future, like you just kick it out into the future. Mm-hmm. It seems like some people aren't bothered by that. Have you come across, like, it, it, they're oh, like, yeah. yeah, we'll we'll get there eventually. Let's not punt too early. Let's not, you know, we have a lot of time. Let's, it's okay yes. to kind of go with that. How, how is that like, how is that like fair, I guess? You know, like, how can they get to do that? I actually think it depends on what they want to do, right? Okay. So, I didn't, I realized I didn't actually say what was problematic about either of the horns. So yeah. I should probably say that quickly, which yeah, is just yeah. like on the first horn, if you just say, well, physical just means whatever the current physicists are talking about. Physicalism is obviously false. Yeah. We know that there's more to the world than what the physicists 
currently know about. They know they're not done, right? right? But if you if you sort of punt it to the future, which is a kind of punting, as you note, who knows what the physicists are going to find, right? Hempel actually raised it in two ways. On the one hand, he's like, this could just be meaningless. If we This criteria could be so empty as to be meaningless. I actually think physicalists have done a good job giving it some meaning, right? Okay. They're yeah. like, no, we're just talking about whatever's the most fundamental science, right? Yeah. So the future physicists, they might not even call themselves physicists, but that's not what matters. What matters is that they're studying the science of relative fundamentality, right? But the real problem is we don't know what they're going to find. And whatever they do find, the track record is they just call it physical. And so no matter how different the the stuff of physics becomes, there's a sense in which it's cheating because, I mean, here's a, I would say, fairly implausible scenario, but flash forward 200 years, the physicists find that every human person has an irreducible, immaterial, immortal soul, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the physicists have found it, so now it counts as physical, and it turns out physicalism was right. Yeah. If physicalism turns out to be right on the discovery of immortal souls, like something's gone wrong, right? So yeah. that you're you're right that there is that there is a kind of cheating there, I think. Yeah. If anything's supposed to be excluded by physicalism, it's immaterial souls. Like yeah. God and spooky ghosts and whatever they yeah. say. They always say spooky, but spooky, yep. Yeah. Any yeah. kind of fundamental mentality is supposed yeah. to be ruled out. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> When when you say like they're studying what's most fundamental, mm-hmm. it seems like like future future physicists, if they keep doing that, they're just going to be metaphysicians because that's what metaphysicians study, right? Like the most fundamental thing of the universe. Like, well, how is that different than you know theoretical physics? When I start yeah. hearing some of these Sean Carroll and some of these guys, it sounds like you're like, and Carroll's really he, he's good in philosophy. Like he's he's that that's confusing. He studied some philosophy and he takes mm-hmm. philosophy seriously. But sometimes these guys are like, hey, look, that's the metaphysician's territory. You know, like it yeah. starts bleeding over. Do you, is there a way to demarcate those two? Or do you think that it's just a, is it a, just a continuum between like theoretical physics and fundamental physics and metaphysics? Yeah, I don't know. I probably don't know enough about theoretical physics, but I do think that the physicists, in addition to being, to studying fundamental reality, they ought to be using empirical methods, right? Uh, yeah, like okay. observation, right? And it ought to be third person. If if physics suddenly starts using introspection, then again, we've, uh, we've missed the mark completely, yeah. right? So it's supposed yeah. to be this third person, um, observation-based, empirically-based. And you're right, of course, with theoretical physics, you can't observe everything, right? Um, but you do observe indications, right? Yeah. It's not unlike astronomy, how we sometimes find new celestial objects by seeing the results of their gravitational field, right? You don't right, actually right. get to observe the, the planet yet, but you know that it's there by inferring from observations. So I think of that as, the, as a pretty good demarcation. Okay. But you're right that physics and philosophy, I mean, it certainly should overlap. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, um, so we got these two horns. We see why they're, they're bad horns. Cause if you take the first one's current physics, Physicists will tell you it's not complete, so it's false. Physicalism in that sense is false. And then if you if you do punt, there's all sorts of options because it's in the future. They might yeah. be on the substance dualist side, uh, which hopefully you know we can we can hope uh, the yeah. future physicists physicists would. Um, 
you you list uh you, you pull from uh, Alyssa Ney a lot which is cool because we read her book last semester in metaphysics nice but but she goes she goes over like five ways of dealing with the dilemma mm -hmm. can do you have those like on top of your mind can, can we talk about those yeah I printed the paper out to remind oh, myself awesome. so I have it nearby yeah no this was this was really helpful for me because this short paper is like a reworking of something I wrote in my dissertation ages ago. And yeah, I caught that. I love that. I love yeah. that you're pulling it back up and, and using it. It's awesome. Well, it's worked out really well for me. When I proposed that we reject causal closure as a graduate student, um, it's not like I was the lone person doing this. It's not at all like that. Sure. But it was way less popular than it is now, right? It's getting yeah, more yeah. discussion now. And yeah. non-reductive physicalism is, is gaining more traction than it had when I was in graduate school. So hmm. um, so it's been it's it's nice when you go when you sort of get back into the literature and realize, oh, people are talking about stuff that I wanted to talk about. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, that's helpful. So yeah, she she kind of parses all of the ways that you could respond to the dilemma, right? Mm -hmm. And she agrees. I, I said in my dissertation ages ago, as far as I know, Melnick is the only one who takes the first horn. And then Nay says in her paper, as far as I know, Melnick is the only one who takes the first. So I'm pretty sure he really must be. <laughs> and I will say in taking the first horn, his conclusion is I'm not this isn't a straw man. This is his position. Physicalism is almost certainly false, but we should still be physicalists. Mm. Right. And he just thinks this is what the scientific realist attitude involves. You adopt the hypothesis. You may think your hypothesis is not likely to be true, mm -hmm. but it's still more likely than the other relevant rivals. Right. Then that's his term, relevant rivals. So it's the best hypothesis we have, even though we're pretty sure it's false. Right. That's how he adopts the first horn. So and he does it. Yeah. Sorry. Well, is it is it like an inference of the best explanation? And you say like this is the pool of options that we have, and so we're we're left because that's like that's like um, Van Frossen's objection to inference of the best explanation. Like you have a bad batch, you have a bad pool of options, so you don't. That's a problem for the theory. Why does he think that that? I don't know. We don't have to spend yeah. the whole time talking about him, but well, no. I mean, I, what he would say is the physicalist cannot appeal to in um what's the word i'm looking for um to a, to an unarticulated future science it is okay. the antithesis of scientific reasoning right and the physicalists are supposed to be on the side of scientific reasoning so gesturing point. towards the future undermines yeah. <laughs> like the motivation for physicalism yeah i think he's right um that's a good point yeah so you yeah. would agree with them i would agree with him on that but we wouldn't agree with them on taking the first horn. That's right. Well, I disagree with him about, you know, his point is, he's like, look, when you're evaluating hypotheses, you only have to consider other articulated hypotheses that tackle the same subject matter. He calls them relevant rivals. Yeah. And then he says, look, even a physicalism that's almost certainly false is a better possibility than the relevant rival of dualism. Right. Yeah. But what I think he doesn't see is that there are other relevant rivals like a physicalism that gestures to future physics, right? Yeah. Which certainly is less palatable for a physicalist, but is almost positively more likely to be true. Okay. Like what's more likely to be true that the physicists have already found everything or that they'll eventually find at least one new thing. Right. Right. It's, it's yeah. obviously more likely that they're going to keep finding things. But and yeah, that's since that's happened, since, since Hempel has been around and made this dilemma, mm -hmm physics has yeah. changed radically that's right so yeah we already have evidence of that okay yeah that's yeah right. okay yeah yeah so okay the rest of the ways so the other ways all involve um let's see taking the second horn right and basically 
they all come down to this question of what you do when you take the second horn, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, you could just take the second horn and say, whatever the future physicists find, we'll just call it all physical. And you know what? Even if, and I think it's Dowell who says this, um, Jessica Dowell, I think is her name, but I, I might have her first name wrong. But she's like, yeah, is it possible the physicists are going to find something like souls? Maybe, but it's so unlikely. I'm just mm-hmm. not worried about it. And so I'm comfortable saying that, look, we leave it to the physicists to find what they find. And then physical just means whatever the physicists will have found when they're done. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, now that that opens the door to the fact that your physicalism could be compatible with dualism. <laughs> and so others instead um, say, no, no, what we need to do is do that. But then add on what we call the um, no fundamental mentality constraint. I think it's Wilson who does this. Dowell student, actually. Um, And she's like, look, it's true. We need to gesture to the future. But physicalism that allows for irreducible mentality just isn't physicalism. So instead, we say physical means whatever the physicists will talk about. And by the way, we can tell you now they're not going to talk about fundamental mentality. Yeah. The cost of that, like the benefit of that is you rule out the dualism stuff. Mm -hmm. The cost is what Melnick said, which is that it's profoundly unscientific to tell the scientists what they're going to discover. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I guess if you did some kind of like, if you were like a super hardcore Bayesian and you could show that like, this is really improbable. And and so, yeah, yeah sure. Lots of things are compatible. The moon could turn into cheese or something, but it's not, it's not likely. I guess if you did something like that, yeah. but we're talking about future stuff here and a future discovery, which yeah. it's just... It seems I, I don't want to I'm I'm always tempted to be like overly critical uh, on this topic. So I'm trying not to. But it seems a little bit like it's poisoning the well against dualism. Right. It's just like we're just going to exclude that because definitionally it can't be that. Yeah. And this is where when you asked me before if it was fair, I said it depends on what they want to do. I think as a response to Hempel's original dilemma, it's probably fine. Right. Physicalism becomes a hypothesis, right? Mm-hmm. Where you just think, I think that everything that exists is going to be captured by science someday, right? And I don't think they're going to find fundamental mentality. Yeah. And then that's a that's a consistent thesis. That's a position that it, it makes sense. Okay. It only becomes problematic if you then want to construct a causal exclusion argument, right? Uh, yeah. That's when I think Hempel's dilemma is so much more difficult for the physicalist who wants to believe in the causal closure of the physical than it is for somebody who's just trying to define what it means to be a physicalist. Right. Because, because, because there's not positive evidence of causal closure. And because it, it becomes actually circular, I think at this point. Right. So they the whole won't point, find the soul because the physical is closed and because it's in. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Or it's like, look, remember how the argument went, right? Like we have yeah. this fundamentally mental cause it looks like, but now we know that everything is really caused by something physical. And now we're adding in the stipulation that the physical can't be fundamentally mental. <laughs> right. So it's not possible for you to have a mental cause. It's like, right. wait, hold on. Now adding that stipulation becomes really problematic, right? Gotcha. Yeah. You're just telling me what kind of things you think exist. It's okay. It's not circular, right? It's sure. it's one of your commitments. And this is where Elisinae's um, notion of taking physicalism to be a stance, right? Or an attitude. Yeah. She's like, I'm, just, I'm just going with the science. I'm just going to take a certain stance towards reality. I think it actually works 
I think it is actually what the physicalist ought to do yeah. for defining physicalism. But then they have no business constructing causal exclusion arguments. Hmm. You can't like rule out in advance mental causation by claiming that this undefined system that you're stipulating can't include mentality, right? Isn't susceptible to meddling by the mental, right? There, I think you get, I think it's only when you construct the causal exclusion argument that the circularity worry becomes really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, it's so good. Yeah. You set that up really well. Um, I really like that. So, um, so, this is always so speculative, um, and I'm sorry, and we could totally not include this if, if you don't want, but um, do you think so – you're, you're a substance dualist, right? I don't know. I'm not okay. actually sure anymore. Yeah, I think I probably okay. am. Most days okay. I definitely am. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because <laughs> yeah. I because I think about when you talk about like getting down to the fundamental and you talk about – I loved, you know, even even you recounting why we don't say materialism anymore because it's not material. It's physical. And when you go down, it's energy. And you go all the way down, it's like, who knows what's down there? It might it might be that it's like spiritual and whatever the heck spiritual means. You could run some kind of dilemma on that as well. And whatever the yeah. theologians in the future say, right? Like, who knows? Yeah. But that, that could be where the causal interaction is happening. I don't want to go to the quantum level because that's what everyone does, right? But yeah. like, who really knows? When it comes to uh, interaction, um. The, one of the intuitive things that I think about um, the physicalists, one of the, one of their more intuitive points is that like conservation of energy or something. And they say like, is the soul producing energy that sends some uh, at some point gives me an action potential to raise my arm? Or do you have any kind of thoughts about like that? The interaction is there energy exchanging or? Yeah, the, I don't. I don't know much about that. I will say. So when I say I'm not always sure that I'm a substance dualist, it's because I think if if we don't have a meaningful category of physical, yeah. we don't have a meaningful category of non-physical. Right. right. That's what I was thinking, too, when you were talking, because it's like maybe it's all the same thing. There's not different yeah. substances. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, I find so I find neutral monism pretty compelling. Right. Okay. Um, okay. This notion that maybe everything <laughs> is ultimately something that's a more fundamental category than physical or mental. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I see no problem with that. I am, I do believe in um, life after death, right? I believe that there is a sense in which a human person is eternal, I believe. But I also believe that the bodily resurrection is central to Christianity, right? Yeah, totally. There's a reason for that, right? Jesus doesn't come back as a disembodied soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why my feelings about, like, is the right answer definitely substance dualism? Here's what I think is correct. Uh, there is clearly mentality that is fundamental, right? There is clearly stuff that an objective account of the world is going to miss. I actually find Nagel most helpful here. This is what Mm. I tend to teach on. So Nagel has this paper, what's it like to be a bat, right? And I think people often think that it's actually about our inability to understand what it's like to be a bat. And (laughs) it isn't. Nagel's whole point was that it's actually about us, right? So yeah, Nagel's like, if you want to know what it's like to be a bat, what can you do? Well, you can study the bat brain and bat behavior and bat biology. And then you could even, if you want, wear a wingsuit, hang upside down in a cave, right? But you're never going to know what it's like to be a bat. <laughs> Your best case scenario is that you might know what it's like to be a person living its best bat life, right? right. Um, but that isn't really where he stops. His point is, if there is something 
subjective, inescapably first person, right? About experience that keeps us from understanding what something else is like. What, because we only have third person access to information about a bat, yeah. we never get to the first person information, right? Mm-hmm. Eagle's point is, if we can't do that for other things, why do we think we can do that for humans? Why do we think that we can give a fully objective third person account and we're going to capture everything? Right. We already know something's going to be left out. What's going to be left out is all these first person experiences that we know we have. Yeah. So it's what I find most persuasive, not a certainty that there is a um, fully material soul where I know what that means. Yeah. I have a high degree of confidence that subjective experiences are, are, are actually a part of reality and that they are inescapably subjective yeah. and that if you try to reduce them and give a fully objective count, you just kill them. I mean, you don't kill them, but you fail to capture them. Whatever yeah. you're left with at the end is not what you started with. And so it's always a failed reduction. I, I think you're, you're totally right. And I, the thing that does it for me is, um, is like inverted qualia, the inverted, inverted, the possibility of inverted spectra. Yeah. Um, because that's what we think of when we're kids and we're like, Hey, I have this highlighter. And what if that looks like purple to you? Um, yeah. and, and it, I think it goes deeper than like colorblindness. Cause people will be like, well, we know that my brother's colorblind. And so he's think he sees things differently, but it's like even more systematic, like even more radical. If a red light looks like, like green to you, it, I would never know. I could never, ever know. And that's, that's cool. It's crazy. I and like it's different to, being colorblind because we can test right. for that. Right, right. You yeah, can't exactly. you can't test for color in uh spectrum inversion. Like you right. just can't. It's so I, cool. I, I love that. I will say when you say that this is what we all think about as children, it turns out this is what we all think about as children if we're the people who end up in philosophy graduate uh, school. <laughs> it's not whatever I asked my friends as kids and they were like, What are you talking about? Oh snap. Okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's true. Um one thing for the for the audience uh, that that uh, I don't want to, I don't want to get lost, but you, you mentioned, uh, neutral monism. And I think that's a really interesting, cool thing that, so, so for those who, who aren't familiar, it's like, let me try. And then if I, if I botch it, help me out. But it's like, um, there's physical, there's mental and neutral monism, like a, a physical monism says everything is physical. And like, uh, a, a mental monism is like idealism saying oh, everything is ideas or mental. And then a neutral monism is like, there's some third thing that both physical and mental are, are, are made out of. It's a neutral mode. We don't know what it is, but someday we might know that it's this third thing. Does that sound right? Yeah. And, and what that third thing is, is like, is deeper than the other yeah. two. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I use this example in the classroom and it's not, I'll just be straightforward. This is not a perfect analogy at all, Sure. but I think like, I don't know if you go into my kids' rooms, you'll find boats and houses and cars and spaceships and uh, TIE fighters and all of these things. Right. And maybe you would want to say, yeah, but what these things really are like, if you, if you, if you really understood them, you'd see that ultimately they're all buildings. Right. And somebody else might say, no, ultimately they're all ships. And the truth is ultimately they're all Legos and Legos can be made into buildings or Legos can be made into ships. Lego is a building or a ship. Right. And so it's like neutral monism. Again, that's not a perfect analogy um, Mm -hmm. because nobody really thinks that buildings are ultimately ships. But the point is that maybe the basic building blocks of reality can be organized in a way that they are mental or physical, right? It's sometimes I think called pan protopsychism, right? So it's not quite the claim that everything is mental, but that everything is made of the stuff that has the potential to be mental. Um, Yeah. 
in, under the right configuration or however you want to uh, cash it out. I I don't think I'm supposed to like that view because I'm a, a dualist, but I really like panprotopsychism or po- or proto Who There's a couple. I've heard different ways, but whatever yeah. the case, uh, the future linguists will tell will tell me how to say it. Yeah. Look again. I wrote my dissertation to defend substance dualism, but I did ultimately come to the conclusion like I just don't know that this. Here's the thing. <laughs> when Descartes said that he was a substance dualist, science was so different, right? Yeah. We thought that causation was things pushing on other things, like yeah. solid things pushing other solid things. And action at a distance was not really something we talked about. Like Descartes' mind would have been blown when you pushed Seriously. a button on your remote and your television turned on, Seriously. right? It doesn't make any sense. And so um, when we act as if we're asking the same question Descartes was asking, we're just not. Yeah. We already know that there is causation that isn't pushing, that there is causation by things that aren't made up of little bits of solid substance. A magnetic field makes a difference in the physical world to solid stuff, right? You hold up a powerful magnet and another magnet will move closer to it, right? So we already know that causation is less mechanistic, maybe you would say, than, um, I don't know if mechanistic is the right word. Um, Well, we already we already know that there is action at a distance. We already know that there are forces and fields. Um, now we have to try to make sense of quantum entanglement, right? Physics got very strange. Yeah. And so this notion of material versus immaterial, it's not the same distinction as physical versus non-physical. That's probably my, um, that is was my ultimate conclusion in the dissertation personally, yeah. was just we're fooling ourselves when we act as if physical and non-physical is just shorthand for what Descartes meant by material and immaterial. Yeah. They're really different categories at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I, I, you've really helped me with the materialism stuff. That's so cool. I don't know why it hasn't, the penny never dropped or the shoe didn't drop, whatever. It, when you said that, it made so much sense. Yeah. We don't think of the world as material anymore. It's not like the atom, the raw atomism or something like BBs. Like, no way. Now we're on to super strings and all sorts of other crazy stuff. And yeah, like super strings could be the, the neutral monism we're looking for. You shape them this way and now it's physical or now we should, who knows? Yeah. It's so crazy. But I do like the pan protopsychism because I really want William Hasker's view of emergent dualism to be right. And I know you're not supposed to do philosophy that way. But I really, I really like it. I really think it's cool. I don't think it's right, but I want it to be. So we'll see. Yeah. All knows? right. Yeah, I like any view that takes mentality seriously. Right. Totally. Yeah. Um, Barbara Montero is pretty good at that. She's like, look, the real question. She has this great little paper um, where she says, you know, we have to stop asking if the mind is physical. And she similarly, she's like, Hempel's dilemma has shown us this doesn't really make any sense anymore. And anyway, what we've always wanted to know is whether mentality is fundamental. Mm. That's the question right? Is mentality fundamental? So I don't know if I'm a substance. Again, most days I probably am a substance dualist, but I do know that I believe that mentality is is fundamental, um, or at least proto-mentality. That is, it it is at least as fundamental as the physical, right? That's what I'm really committed. Yeah. Do you, do you, um, I just want to like see, see where you're at. Do you think that idealism or physicalism is more probable if you only had those two options? Oh, good question. I I guess I would. Can I, am I really going to say this public and have it be on the internet? I guess I am. I think if I genuinely only had those two options, uh-huh. I would probably go idealism. I think yeah. I'm with you. Like I, I used to be the other other way, and now I'm like, no, I just, 
I am with you. Like it's, and, and or there's more options, thankfully. Right. Um, exactly. say, yeah. 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 Okay. I think no. that's cool. Yeah. That's good. Um, so Dolores, there's this, there's this pairing problem and you dealt with it in your dissertation and I wish we had 25 hours to go through your dissertation because it's, it's awesome. Um, do we, do you think we have some time to just cover the pairing yeah, problem really quick? I have plenty of time here. So, okay. Yeah. So, so I thought that um, it'd be interesting to talk about the pairing problem because uh, we talked about physicalism and why, we we might want to say, um, well, why causal closure is is not a great thing to bake into the cake here, and why you shouldn't be able to do that. So then, um, I thought since since we've kind of opened the door to the physical not being closed, now we have this weird pairing problem because because the door is open. Um, it's like which immaterial mind is doing the the action now? Like because you open the door now, well, it could be a bunch of them. Can you just lay it out a little bit better for us, the, the pairing problem than I just did? Sure, yeah. This I did not take the time to look over, so I'm going to do my best here. Okay. Yeah, but so, I mean, there is a sense in which both the causal exclusion argument and the pairing problem are attempts to to strengthen the Princess Elizabeth objection, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Descartes, even if the mind is like you think it is, it could never make a difference in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because diverse substances can't interact, right? And we're just mm-hmm. accept that problem of diverse substances. And one reason you might think they can't interact is because you might think the physical world is this closed domain and you can't have meddling, right? But the other reason you might think they can't interact is, and this is just the pairing problem, I think I think it's Jaguan Kim came up with the problem, I believe. That's what and I've he, heard. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's in the book, Physicalism or Something Near Enough. Um, I love that. That's what he titled the book. And then everybody called him a dualist from then on because <laughs> it's not near enough, right? Um, but anyway, so... The parent problem was his attempt to really strengthen this problem of diverse substances. Mm. He's like, we have this intuition, but, and I, I admire Kim's honesty here. He's like, we've been giving each other a pass on this. We physicalists, right? This is not a very good argument <laughs> to just stipulate that diverse substances can't interact, right? right? Why? Let's try to come up with a reason why they couldn't interact. And he thinks the best candidate is that you need spatial location to be a member of a causal relation, mm. right? Um, and that if you don't, if if an immaterial mind, a soul, is totally um, immaterial and so lacks spatial location, which was the traditional account, right? Immaterial minds are not located anywhere. Um, if it lacks spatial location, then somehow you can't really pair the right cause to the right effect, right? Why is it that my mind causes this body and not some other body to raise its arm, right? Right. Um, yeah, I, I guess the my my primary response to the pairing problem is that I don't think Kim realized that his own account faces just the same pairing mm. problem, right? Um, so I think I think not just his account. There's just increasingly common view, right, where people say, well, everything about the mind can be reduced to physics except qualia, right? Because what it's like to see the color red, you know, we could have this potential for qualia inversion and all of that. And so then the claim is that qualia is epiphenomenal. Yep. But when you claim that qualia are epiphenomenal, um, what you're claiming is that they are caused by, but are not causes in the physical world, right? Yep. But if they are caused by physical things, then they enter into a causal relation with physics. They enter into it as an effect. Just as a one way, yeah, just one way, yeah. It is one way, 
But in his statement, at least, at least Kim's version of the pairing problem, he says that both Rilata have to be spatially located to make sense of that relationship. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. This is a paper I've meant to publish for like 10 years, but I'm terrible about prioritizing publishing. <laughs> um, but after this talk, I'm going to try again, right? Yeah, because yeah. I, think, I really think, I think it's a point that's been missed a lot. Epiphenomenalism is not no causation. Yeah. Uh, the qualia actually are parts of a causal relation. They're just always the effect and never the cause. Yeah. But pairing is supposed to preclude them from being a part of any causal relation. I'm sorry. The pairing problem is supposed to say if they're not spatially located, then they can't be in any causal relation. Did did Kim? Um, um did his were, were his nomological nomological danglers uh, non spatially located? Um, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, where probably, where would they be? Right. Yeah. They're definitely not in the brain. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. I love that. Okay. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, well, I'm glad you got it out here. So no one can, no one can scoop you because it's on record. And there we, got we go. It, you know? Yeah. No, I've, I've done it at conferences and stuff. I've just okay. never actually sent it. I've uh, never gotten it. I think I even got a revise and resubmit once and didn't get it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. E- even if they, they come back and say, all right, well, no, really the best way to understand the pairing problem is to say, you need to be spatially located to be the cause, right? Maybe yeah. you say, it turns out you can be in effect without spatial location. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a little ad hoc. But even if we allow that, right? Yeah. I do think that um, the sort of historical reasons for not wanting the immaterial mind to have a spatial location, I just don't find them compelling anymore, right? Like the thought was, well, if it's located, then it could be like cut in half, right? And the mind is supposed to have unity. Right. I, it could be located at a single point, right? Or I just, right. I, yeah. um, again, though, to be clear, it's not like I'm a really robustly thought out committed substance dualist here. So it's possible that other substance dualists who are really committed to substance dualism will, you know, email you and let you know why I'm wrong about this. They Maybe won't. there are. They, they won't. I always try to push my, because I'm, I'm a substance dualist myself, but I always push everyone and they all go, this is similar to you. They're always just like, Hey, look, mental causation is important. What, whatever we need for mental causation, that's what's up. That's yeah. really kind of like the heart of, of all my substance dualism uh, interactions and friends. Like everyone, want, that's what they want to focus on. They say, look, I'm not sh- super sure. I think maybe this, maybe that, but I could be wrong. It's, it's more just like, hey, we need mental causation. And exactly. if, you don't, if yeah. you don't get that, we can't even have this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because to deny it. I mean, you just have to deny pretty much everything that you know, right? Pretty much everything that is a constant part of your life. Like, I, I do think you, it's self-defeating in that sense. I, I, yeah. I, some people want to say no. I really think it's self-defeating to do that. You certainly, at the very least, um, it's like Van and Wagen's like, argument from deliberation or something. I think he has this argument from deliberation at some point for libertarian free will. Mm-hmm. And one of the points is like, you can't live. Um, you can't live consistently as if you didn't have free will. Right. Mm-hmm. You just be paralyzed. You would never deliberate because what would be the point of deliberating? You would believe that it's already been decided what you're going to do. Right. Yeah. Um, I may have botched that. I haven't read that in a really long time. <laughs> but I do feel that way about mental causation. Like. It, what would it be? This is I mean, again, nay, when she talks about physicalism as a stance, not even causal closure, just fit, just accepting as a stance. Like, look, I'm only going to accept the existence of things that physics talks about. Right away, she's like, this is really hard. This is a hard thing. <laughs> this takes work, right? Yeah. And it takes work because we are constantly encountering things in our own subjective consciousness that what are you supposed to do? Deny the reality of that, right? Um, yeah. 
or just insist upon the reducibility of that which seems just patently unsuited for objective treatment, basically. Right. right. Yeah, that's so good. So, yeah, I'm I'm with you in in just rejecting um, uh, non spatial non spatial conceptions of uh, Cartesian substance dualis- dualism. I know, like the the Cartesian scholars in the in the crowd, he didn't really believe that. There's always so so many debates, but people take this non spatial view and they associate it with with Descartes, whether that's the case or not. But yeah, just saying, like, yeah, so the so the mind is spatially located. I think the the phenomenology of of mind backs that up. I think I'm here. Uh, I, I don't think that I'm not here or nowhere. Like it seems like I'm here talking to a screen and seeing you. So I think we can just easily do that. Like, yeah, the phenomenology of it. I'm, I'm here. It's fine. And I'm a soul and I have a body. Yeah. I see yeah. overwhelmingly limited by the location. Like I am mentally completely limited by the location of my physical body. Totally. totally. So it seem like this is where my mind is. Yeah. 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 But, yeah. but the physicalist, but I can also think and deliberate. And so let's not yeah. push it all into the brain either. Yeah. yeah, that's really good. Um, Dolores, this has been fantastic. This has been a really fun conversation. I, I, I wondered um, if if just briefly as we close out here, if you could talk about the annul that your daughter discovered, because we do have some science freaks out here. Is that yes. cool? Can you can you talk about that? Yeah, I would love to. I am such a lizard nerd. Moving to Florida. I always thought I liked lizards, but I grew up in New York. I never saw them. Right? Yeah, yeah. Florida. And I absolutely love lizards. Yes. Yeah, so we were out in the yard one day and my daughter was like four at the time. She's 10 now. Um, so my daughter came in and said, oh, we have a new lizard in the yard and it's blue. Now, every once in a while, you'll see a blue skink in my yard, right? Mm-hmm. We mostly have brown and owls. We don't really have green and owls. Um, huh. I mean, Florida does, but my neighborhood doesn't okay. because the brown and owls push them out. Right. Mm-hmm. So I just thought, oh, you saw skink. Right. And, you know, my four year old was like, it's not a skink, mom. I know what a skink looks like. We have a new lizard. It's blue. And I was like, OK, well, why don't you show me? You know, and she's four. Um, but she was 100 percent right. I went out and there is this like eight inch long anole, which is a lot bigger than the brown anoles. And from its waist to its head, it's vivid blue. Hmm. Um, and from its waist to its tail, it was as green as a green anole. Right. And then it had a purple dewlap. What is that? Right. So we looked it up. And it took two seconds to figure out it was an Alice and an Ole. It's a very distinct looking lizard. I can send you a little video of it if you want. Um, you have. I'm, I'm trying to pull it up. Yeah. Because awesome. I think, yeah. Because it's beautiful, right? So I look it up. There it is. Yeah. yeah. That video was taken outside the window in my hallway, right? Um, trying to um, mute. There we go. Yep. Yeah. Good. You can mute it. I think she. Yeah. So it took, it took no time at all to figure out this has got to be the Alice and an Ole. But the internet indicated that the Allison and Ole lives almost entirely in Cuba, Cuba and one other small island. Hmm. So we thought, all right, somebody's escaped pet, right? Because that does happen. People find them as pets. Especially in Florida. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Only a year later, we had more. And the next year, we had way more. And then we started to observe them mating, like right there, actually, outside of our window. Um, And we clearly had a growing population. So I finally reached out to... um, I think I made a posting on an iNaturalist website hmm. and got a, a pretty big response that told me that this would actually be a big deal. I didn't realize that this would be the first established population in the, on the continent, right? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I reached out. Um, we're homeschoolers, and so you gotta yeah. you gotta follow this stuff. Yep. So we ended up reaching out to um, herpetologist Chris Tolley or Tholley. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. We've never met, 
corresponded quite a bit over email and they ended up, um, we, we wrote a paper together. The kids and I ran around snapping little bits of the tail off uh, to send them off to them for DNA analysis to confirm that these really are the Cuban Allison and Alls. Um, wow. There are rumors of one other population somewhere in Florida. They haven't been DNA confirmed and they're not yeah. as blue. So I'm not convinced yet, but what we do know is that this is the first like DNA confirmed, established, reproducing population. I mean, it's mating season right now. They're all over my house okay. again. Wow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, next time you're at PBA, if you want to make the, you know, it's like a four hour trip, but <laughs> it might you're be welcome. worth it. That's yeah. Two minutes to find them. They're all over my yard. So, so awesome. Do you, do you know, um, do you know the extent of the population? Is it like your neighborhood or is it a couple like neighborhoods? Is it your county? Do you know? So far as we know right now, it's just our neighborhood. Yeah. That's crazy. And Iowa's concentration really seems to be my house, which is a little weird. <laughs> the theory is that they, um, we know that anoles like to lay their eggs in certain kind of bromelades and that there are some in our yard and mm. people will often buy them from Cuba in Florida. And so the thought is there were a few eggs, including a male and a female. Yeah. That's the best it's the best hypothesis, right? Yeah. Um, but it's pretty fun. Yeah, that that vibrant color is so beautiful. I think like I, I've I have it on my desktop because I look at it here and there when I'm thinking about inverted qualia. I'm I'm pretty obsessed with inverted qualia, but I'm like, I wonder if other people see it the way I do. It's so yeah. cool. Yeah. No, I we've had these lizards now. This is our fifth year with them, I think. And I still stop and watch them every time I see them. I mean, I still so find them they look kind of magical. Yeah. yeah and now totally. my daughter. I mean, I do too, I guess, but yeah, she got her first peer-reviewed academic publication as a 10-year-old. It's so Caribbean cool. Herbology, I think, is the name of the journal. <laughs> yeah. It's like uh, a, a, a bolster for, for every uh, homeschool kid everywhere. Yeah, like, that's true. That just raises the level. It's so yeah, good. It's yeah, fun. that's awesome. Yeah, we well, like Dolores, it. this has been huge. Thanks for all your, uh, thanks for your work. Thanks for sending me your dissertation and, and your paper. Yeah. Thanks also for this Believing Philosophy. Um, I, I hope yeah, this isn't our you. last time talking. I'd love to talk more philosophy. Uh, you, you and I have talked about, you know, defining philosophy as, as yeah. most philosophers do. Um, and, uh, and it's super fascinating trying to define what we're talking about as well, as we saw from this episode. Yes. So uh, looking forward yeah. to more. Uh, before I let you go here, is there anywhere uh, where people can find more of your work if they're interested? Um, I mean, the book is my first book and I don't actually have a lot of publications. Yeah. So um start with the book yeah buy the book (laughs) i will no i will say one more thing actually in addition to buying the book i just got back from grand rapids where i recorded a lecture series for zondervan oh cool it's also going to be called believing philosophy and it's a part of their master lectures series paul gould has done them too right Mm -hmm. and so if you're more into podcasts than books next year i mean apparently the turnaround time is like seven to nine months but you can eventually purchase the lectures there's one lecture for every chapter of the book so it's basically a a master course of the book and you can get it as video or ultimately you can just download the audio as well so that'll be fun awesome yeah looking forward to that and when that does come out folks i'll link it in the description here so if you're watching this in a year from now wherever you can find it right here in the description check that out um, this has been Parker's Pensies. That's going to have to be uh, it for now, folks. But as always, all glory to God.